welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Fiona Williams about her contemporary novel, The House of Broken Bricks. Fiona has a bachelor's degree in biological sciences from the University of Westminster and an MA in creative writing from Bath Spa University. Originally from South East London, she now lives with her family on the Somerset levels. In this episode, we discuss using nature writing to reflect the story's mood, reading work aloud to find rhythm and melody in a sentence, and how exposing the publishing process is for introverts. But before we hear that, here's Fiona with an excerpt from The House of Broken Bricks. It's the middle of the night. I creep downstairs wrapped in my dressing gown when everyone's asleep. Better to be up and busy than lying there frustrated. The house is so still, I can almost hear the murmur of the river through the bricks. The flagstones in the kitchen are glacial beneath my bare feet. My slippers are upstairs. I'm quieter without them. There's still some heat left in the Rayburn, but not nearly enough, so I shove in wood until the log basket is completely empty. Outside there's not a drop of light in any direction, as though the entire world has disappeared. We could be the only people left, alone, in this house, oblivious. It's the same routine, a furtive cup of tea followed by some sort of baking, my new habit. I'm good at it now, stealthy. I cream, sugar and butter, crack eggs and sift flour without making a sound. Not that I need to worry. Once asleep, they don't wake up until morning. Tonight I decide on blackberry muffins and take from the freezer a couple of bags of misshapen fruit, picked most likely by Max at the end of summer, from the brambles that border the sheep field. They begin to thaw on contact with the batter. I fold in air with my large wooden spoon, one eye on the clock. All these cakes and I can barely eat them. Mama thinks I'm losing weight. Says this life doesn't agree with me, that I'm losing the coveted Sullivan backside and hips. Mama says a lot of things. So does Peaches. Maybe they're right. What am I thinking? Thirty minutes until the muffins are done. So I sit and sip my tea and stare at the reflected woman in the window. Is this really what I've become? Finally roasting hot, the rayburn drums into life and thrusts boiling water through the narrow copper pipes leading out of the kitchen, along the hall skirt into the tepid radiators. It taps quietly in an animated rhythm that disturbs the silence. Sometimes it feels like this house is alive. The warmth brings with it the honeyed smell of bacon that makes my eyelids heavy and reminds me of sleep. I'm taken back to past summers, spur-of-the-moment picnic teas in the orchard, the boys keeping wasps off the jam sandwiches, and all those plump, juicy blackberries that overflowed from empty ice cream tubs and left our fingers pricked and sticky. A creak on the stairs brings me back. I freeze, my mug at my lips. For a moment I think it's sunny, awakened by a bad dream perhaps, or by the low rumble of the heating. As a baby, he was the one who stirred most often during the night to summon me from my sleep, more in need than Max of a feed or cuddle. If it is him, I won't send him back to bed. He could keep me company until the muffins are ready, and then we'd eat one each with a spoonful of cold custard straight out of the tin, our secret. I wait, but no one comes. It's only the wooden tread stretching as the house warms up. Hi Fiona, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The House of Broken Bricks. 
Hi, Chloe. Um, thank you so much for inviting me. It's such an honour. Um, this podcast has become such a rite of passage. And so to be on it, it's just, oh, it's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It's lovely to hear. Can you start by introducing the House of Broken Bricks to us? Tell us what it's all about. Okay, um, so the House of Broken Bricks, it's um, a novel that's really looking at belonging in place, really. Um, I'm, it's looking at the ties that bind us to family, um, to community, to landscape, um, and the secrets that can sort of threaten to tear these ties apart. The story's mainly set on the Somerset levels, and it follows the year in the life of a family that's taken to the very brink. Um, there's Tess, um, who's a mum in the family, and she has moved from London, she's left behind her really close-knit British Jamaican family to live um, in this really small farming village where her husband, Richard, was born. Um, they live with their sons, Max and Sonny, who are fraternal twins of different colours. So Max presents as white, whereas Sonny presents as black. Yeah, and, and that adds so much tension in the novel. There's, there's kind of, there's loads of tension between all of the characters and I'll kind of, tread carefully because there's certain things that we want to keep for the reader to discover as they enjoy the novel. I wondered if you had a particular starting point for this book, whether you can remember what that kind of early inspiration was, where did it all come from? Um, I think the novels come from so many things, you know, this is quite a common question, you know, what inspired you? Mm. That I mean, I moved, personally, I moved from London. Well, I'd moved all over the place, but I, I started off in London and I moved to rural Somerset. So I think my experiences are definitely woven through the book and I really wanted to share some of those experiences. There were many questions that I had and my family had about perceptions of identity and belonging um, and some of the trials that Tess kind of goes, goes through are things that I've experienced myself. Although... I, I really want to do stress that the novel's not autobiographical. My husband's adamant that people know that he is not Richard. <laughs> <laughs> He's really worried about that. Um, but we, I wanted to capture some of the things that we have experienced and that other people that I know have experienced. Um, I think particularly as well, I wanted to look at it from the point of view of British children of mixed heritage, you know, and, and who gets to decide if someone is local or not. Because mm. a lot of villages... In Somerset, they say that if you've got more than three generations in the graveyard, then you can kind of class yourself as a local. But, you know, for example, what if you have got three generations, but your mum's black? You know, are you still allowed to call yourself local? Um, and will other people see you as that? Um, also, I think I, the book is really, really inspired by just the wild beauty of the Somerset levels. It's such a beautiful place. Um, and I really wanted to write a love letter almost to the landscape as well because I think that it's it's not in novels very often mm. I haven't read it very often you know and it's such a beautiful area so I really wanted to kind of pay homage to that as well I also wanted to kind of share some observations of just modern village life I mean we all have these kind of quite nostalgic views of what village life might be like but I did want to touch on on you know some of the realities of living in the village you know Lots of villages are facing flooding, pub closures, mm. Airbnb springing up all over the place, you know, and what it's like to be old in a village, access to transport, that kind of isolation that can come quite quickly as you age. So these are all things that I, I've kind of seen around me and, and I've had friends and neighbours go through. And I really wanted to kind of share that in the novel. 
Yeah, I think you captured that so well. And I've also heard your novel described as this like pastoral novel describing the English countryside, which you do beautifully. And I wondered, this is tied in and woven in between this rising tension in the household. We've got Richard and his allotment and we've got the river and we've got um, all these sort of the nature around them. But inside the house is this, you know, boiling point. Can you talk about that juxtaposition between the two? Um, I think that I wanted to use the beauty and the abundance of the nature and the landscape to balance out some of the heavier themes, because the book does touch on some really quite heavy topics. And so it it was quite helpful for me to have the landscape to, to kind of frame everything around. I wanted to show that even when things are going badly, you're still surrounded by natural beauty and that nature keeps on going. Mm. It, doesn't, it doesn't stop just because life's fallen apart or things aren't going how you want them. Um, but so even though, but even though nature is the bigger picture here, I really wanted to look at it with a, a child's eye and capture that wonder and that awe that children feel when they, they look at tiny things. You know, when I wrote the book, I wrote the majority of the books out of the kitchen table. Um, and there's a big window to the side and so all the way through writing I'd you know stare into space procrastinating and just looking at the kind of fields outside in the trees watching the seasons turn um, and it's impossible it was impossible not to be affected by that mm. um, whenever I went out walking so we've got dogs that go out walking really early along the riverbank you know I'd always take a notebook and, and pen and jot down everything I saw um, because I think the landscape and the nature in it is really important and it wanted to, I wanted to tie the characters to the landscape and show that their relationships with nature are as meaningful as their relationships with each other and with, with people. Um, I think as well I also wanted them to use the nature to help reflect the story's mood because we go through the seasons from autumn to summer and the mood of the novel is very much in relation to to those seasons mm. so I, and I wanted readers to feel the change in the seasons and feel the change in the characters moods in yeah. relation to that definitely yeah, absolutely I wanted to ask about perspective that you use because it didn't I'm really bad at noticing perspective until I kind of suddenly went oh okay <sighs> all the characters apart from Richard are written in first person and Richard is written in a third person and I'd love if you could talk about that choice I kind of have an idea of why but I'd love to hear your kind of thinking behind it I mean it was a really difficult decision to make and I did play around quite a bit at the beginning with different perspectives and, and points of view trying to work out what to do with everybody I think for Tess and the boys I really wanted the reader to be in their shoes and to experience you know firsthand the kind of complex and conflicting emotions that they feel, um, particularly for the boys, I really wanted there to be that immediacy of traveling around with them and connecting with the space and with other members of the community. But for Richard, I think I wanted to keep him somewhat more distant than with the other characters. You know, he's a, a white guy, he's in his home village, he's quite comfortable there with his identity. And so I think in, I think retrospectively now, I, I look back and think that, I think I wanted to marginalize him in some way and keep him on the periphery a little bit. Um, but I think the main reason was because I didn't want him to reveal what he was, what what was going on in the story. You know, there's a lot <laughs> going on 
yeah, which yeah. Child that we don't know about and I didn't want anyone <laughs> to pick up on it too soon like I didn't want readers to have access to his internal thoughts until the right moment mm. um I'm not going to obviously give what that is away but I wondered how hard that was for you to kind of write around this secret I guess to very avoid hard. it very hard yeah by the time I reached the kind of I guess reveal I was like wow that that must have been really difficult because <laughs> I, mean, I don't read a lot at like a lot of books with kind of I guess you'd call them twists but reveals mm. in that sense and I'm terrible at noticing the clues or anything and then I kind of thought about it and I thought oh Fiona's so clever like I really thought you did that so well because it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel like you were purposely avoiding telling the reader. It was done in a very artful way. And I think it must have been really hard to do that. It was very hard. I think I didn't want to hide everything and it be like a big da-da at the mm. end. I did want it to be that if you were looking for the clues, there was lots of clues there to be yeah. found. Um I think as well for me in the writing, I was so looking forward to it. So that kind of helped me kind of go, oh, not yet, not yet, you know, be patient and get to mm-hmm. it. It's, 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 uh, I feel that the book is quite heavy in places. And for me, the reveals that come later are a bit of a treat um, after having gone through all the hard times. Um, so yeah, it was, I think that's what kept me going with that. And it was quite fun to, to do it. And, and think of ways of dropping it in but not showing it yeah definitely we've been super cryptic hopefully people that have read the book they will understand totally what we're going we're talking yeah. about um, otherwise just read the book and then you'll know um <laughs> there's such a gorgeous well, one of the things i noticed straight away is that your writing has such a beautiful and kind of interesting rhythm to the voice and I wondered I think for some writers that kind of voice just comes out straight away draft number one that's the, the voice on the page but other writers have to work at it and that doesn't come as naturally but I wondered for you was the voice one of the first things that came out or did you later go back and edit you know, it this is something that has really 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 surprised me because I didn't even know I'd written it rhythmically until after <laughs> other people told me I had absolutely no idea so it's it's been a real eye-opener for me my husband has said that I I apparently when I am writing I I hum which I didn't know either right I hum my sentences so I'm making sure there are enough beats in the bar mm-hmm. like and mm-hmm. I've realized now that I do like melody in the sentences somehow I don't know why I don't know if it's a Virgo thing or just a neuro spicy thing I don't know where it's come from but I I I like rhythm I didn't even know I did so no I it wasn't intentional at all it came out that way and then in the editing stage and looking back on it then then I did see it then because other people kept mentioning it and I thought oh yeah I I do and and when I read my sentences out loud I do listen for I don't know the tunefulness of it all and I can tell if a word is wrong because the tune doesn't sound yeah. right I, I totally <laughs> I, I completely I don't know where that comes from I completely relate I it just feels wrong doesn't it it just sounds wrong it sounds um, wrong. 
and I I mean I I do sometimes read my work aloud usually when I've kind of done a couple of drafts but sometimes in, even in my head I'm just like nope that doesn't that I need another I need a short sentence here or I need a you know another word here and, and it's funny isn't it like it's how funny. often do you read your work aloud do you reading it quite often I read it aloud a lot mm. I read aloud a lot that's something that I've always done all the way through I, I read it aloud if I've just written like a whole solid piece that I'm feeling like okay this piece is is, is working for me I will read it out straight away and I'll know instinctively from reading it out whether or not it really is working and I do it for everything I do it for emails as well and I find myself humming and reading out loud my emails <laughs> and like hi da, 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 da. and yeah I, so I think I do a lot because I think it's a different part of your brain that hears it and access it mm. accesses it and I think it really helps to see if it's working or not it's really funny because I've got students now and I talk to them one of my biggest pieces of advice that I give them is read your work out loud and record yourself you know that was the worst thing sometimes I'd record it just so that I could hear it read back to me and think yeah that does sound okay it works okay so yeah definitely definitely something I'd recommend <laughs> <laughs> we've sort of touched on one aspect of the book that was challenging but I wondered whether there was any other aspects of the writing process that were particularly mm. difficult during this book? I think the biggest challenge for me, especially at the beginning, was juggling my time with family and mm. work. I was working um, as a freelance medical writer at the time, um, with kids at home, age 10 and 6, they were roughly around 10 and 6 at the time. So there were so many demands. I had demands of school. Um, and I also I work in, I guess if I think about my work, I was working as a medical writer. I've worked, I've worked in the kind of pharmaceutical kind of field for a very long time. And I have a science background and trying to switch my brain between science and science writing and that kind of really formal way of writing to then switch into kind of creative writing for the novel. It's really, really hard. And there were lots of days where I couldn't write anything because I was just in the wrong gear and I couldn't switch my brain into the right mode for it. Um, and I think the challenges of having kids at home. Also, it was the, the book. I'd started writing the book before COVID came, before COVID hit us, but ended up sort of finishing it off during lockdown. And I had kids at home trying to homeschool. Um, and I ended up writing lots of it just sat on the sofa with them sat next to me watching movies and stuff. And it's, you know, lots of people have quite, quite precise and lovely writing routines. <laughs> it's really envious. I think, wake up at five, two hours of writing, not in my house. It no. just doesn't happen. I literally have to write whenever and wherever I can, um, wherever I get a gap. And I think that's why I chose to do an MA, to protect my writing time and to give me some deadlines to work against. But I think then my my next challenge, I think when I went on the MA was sharing my work because at that point I hadn't really shared it with anybody ever. And so that was quite nerve wracking. I had a science degree, I was coming into humanities subject and everyone else had an English or classics background. And I was really worried about it. Like, was my work gonna be up to scratch? But so I think that was quite hard that got through it in the end. I'm intrigued there because you mentioned your MA. At what mm -hmm. point did you think, okay, I, I enjoy writing or I think I've got a talent um, and I'm going to do an MA? What, what, at what point was that kind of dis 
Yeah, I think it was because I, I I started writing and then I really started to worry that I didn't know if what I was writing was any good. Mm-hmm. I thought I've got no one to ask if if I'm even doing this right. Um, and I really wanted to be somewhere or be involved in something where I would be getting feedback. Um, and I did think about going, I was actually thinking of going back to do a BA, like all the way back to the beginning. But then, you know, obviously, um, with work and kids and life and the age that I am, I was like, that's really not feasible. So I thought, well, I'll try for an MA because it's a shorter course and I could fit it in around work and kids. Um, so that's kind of the impetus for, for applying. I didn't think I'd get on. So it was a case of just, I'll give it a go and see. And then I got on the programme um, and then it all kind of led from there, really. Yeah, because after that, 2021, you won the Bridport, I'm going to, it's a long title, Bridport Prize <laughs> Andrews Novel <laughs> Award. Um, so first of all, like, how did, well, what made you apply for this competition? Um, because you've done your MA, and then I guess, was there a period in between where you were still working on your writing or thinking about kind of did you enter other competitions like what what kind of led you to this competition um I think on the MA one of the pieces of advice that we got was you know once you've kind of got something worth showing you need to kind of think about sharing it with agents putting it out for competitions so I the MA had finished we were still in the midst of lockdown I think at that time I can't remember um and I have to be honest, the writing was dwindling away. I, I lost the structure and the support of the MA. I got went back to work. Kids were at home doing homeschooling. And I I really felt that was the end of it for me. I felt like it had just been a really wonderful experience and I'd had a great time, but now time to get back to real life and crack on. And so I remember the, the advert came round for the Bridport Prize and there was another prize at the same time that was also being advertised. And I thought well, I've got my stuff here. I can just do a submission. We'd just been practicing kind of writing pictures and synopses. And so I thought, well, I've got everything I need for it. It doesn't require much effort. I'm just going to send it off. You know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. I'll just try and see. But I really honestly sent it off and then did not think about it ever again. It was a case of, okay, I've done that. And then I just carried on with my life. Didn't think about it at all. And then I remember the email came out to say that I... Had made the long list which was that in itself for me was a huge shock an absolutely huge shock you know I thought oh my gosh you know, someone's actually read it and liked it um and with the other the other prize I didn't hear anything I didn't make any lists so I thought okay that's obviously as far as it's going to go and I was really chuffed I was so happy just with that um, but then you know it kept going on and, and on and then to finally win oh I cried I cried so much <laughs> It was a lot of crying, um, uh, you know, and I, I feel like it, it gave me it gave me validation, definitely. Yeah, that yeah. I was a writer because up until that point, I wouldn't have, I didn't call myself a writer. I was just somebody who'd done the writing MA and had a go at writing, but I didn't think of myself as a writer. Mm. And I think at that point, it was like, am I, am I allowed to say it now? Um, <laughs> you are which, definitely which, allowed. Which to. was quite nice. Um, <laughs> you are an award winner. <laughs> Right, it, it just blew up from there and yeah. it so quickly the whole thing was just such a such a explosion of, of things happening one after the other um, did you did after you <laughs> won did you have um interest from agents and things after that straight away immediately um um several agents got in touch and 
I hadn't even finished the novel at that point because they don't they don't like look at that entire novel they look at it was about half um and so it was a case of oh my god I've actually got to finish writing I remember Christmas was coming um and I got an agent really really quickly like so quickly and she was like come on you've got to get it finished and I remember writing over that Christmas period and I was I do love a deadline. I think it's because of the jobs I've had in the past. So I had a deadline and it was like, right now I've got a deadline. It woke me up again because I'd kind of put that writing head to sleep and it was like, off we go. And I was up late in the night writing. Um, and I really enjoyed it actually because I felt energised by it. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a very exhausting but exciting moment. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say to anyone who is out there that is, like you were and saying I'm not a writer I'm just uh just someone that likes to write or I'm an aspiring writer um and they're nervous about applying for competitions because they don't think they're good enough or they don't think they're ready what would your advice be to them I think just go for it really always just go for it because you just never know do you you never never know where it's going to lead if anyone had asked me if I thought I'd even make a long list I would have said of course I won't but I'm just doing it because I want to practice kind of submitting things and thinking about my work I mean and it it's 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 it does come down to luck in a lot of ways because I mean I submitted to two two competitions at the same time one one and didn't even make the long list on the other so you know it's you're going to get knocked back so you might not get anywhere but then you you just might I think even just the, the just the preparing for submitting to a competition is good practice as well and it does help, it forces you to think about your work in a more industry focused way. You know, how do you describe what you've written, which is a really hard thing, I think, for a lot of writers to do. I found it really hard. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you hadn't finished the novel when you submitted it. And then obviously you worked with an agent. Mm. So how did, did your novel change much from the kind of competition entry to the, the final published book? Because I... I saw an interview with you where you'd won um, mm. and you were talking about the novel and I thought I can see the, the novel in what you're saying but I also think the novel maybe it may have changed a little bit did it did it change much <clears throat> it didn't change structurally structurally um it's it has stayed the same the only thing that I did do with the help of my agent and then later my editor was maybe move a few things around in terms <laughs> of timing just to help with pacing um in terms of, and there was quite a, I, the novel was a lot bigger originally as well. So there was, and I knew that it needed to be trimmed down. So they definitely helped me taking out the bits that just were lovely. They said they're lovely, but not necessary. Um, so that was quite a useful exercise for me as well, because I don't have that kind of writing experience mm -hmm. of trying to work out what's, what's, what, what's needed and what isn't needed. Um, so no, it didn't change. The idea that I had from the beginning, it's still the same now. I think things had probably changed before the Bridport Prize in some ways. The novel that I kind of finished my MA with and then what I ended up submitting to the Bridport Prize, that did change. because so I did show it um, to some agents earlier on um, and got some feedback. This was in the very early stages, which part of the kind of university kind of did lots of kind of events where you could kind of pitch your work and get some feedback. And I think that I had thought to myself that I had been trying really hard to write a novel in the shape of what I thought a novel should be. And then I actually got to the point where I thought, I just don't, don't, 
don't think I want to do that. I'm, I want to just write what I want to write in the way that I want to write it. So it did change a bit then. And I, that's when I kind of broke it down into the chapters that it is in now. Um, and that hasn't changed even through the editorial process. Mm, that's interesting. So a question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast is mainly about the kind of ups and downs of being a debut novelist, because I think on the outside, a lot of people think it's all sunshine and roses and everyone's dreams are coming true. And obviously it is amazing. It's such a privilege. We all feel so thrilled to have our books um, out there in the world, but there are ups and downs emotionally, kind of practically things that maybe you weren't expecting to happen that have happened or things that you thought, you know, you didn't understand about the process. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what advice you would have to next year's cohort. So when I interview the 2025, (laughs) what would your advice be to them now who are going through it all? And what do you wish you'd known way back when? Because you signed your contract two years ago. Two years ago. And you are, I'm sure you're a very different person now. So what what would yours be? (laughs) What do you wish you'd known? I think the first thing probably is based on that. And I think it would be to pace yourself. It's a long, long road from even getting the publishing deal to actually seeing it in print. It's a long road. Um, You know, you've jumped all the hurdles. You've got your agent, you've got your book deal and you think, well, hey, I'm off. And then there's this whole roller coaster of emotions that go on for all these years and you've got to contend with it. You've got to find a way to live with it. So I think that it can be hard. Um, And I think one of the advice I'd give is during that period is to, to find something else to do. So that you're not kind of fixating on it because um, it's a it's a long time and a lot of worry and doubts and that's when anxiety start to, to pop up i mean i i'm doing a phd i started my phd um in 2022 and so i'm i'm busy and keeping busy in this process has been really really helpful because i've got other things to think about and to worry about um i think as well when bits of advice I would give is to what everyone says is you know not to compare yourself with others and it's incredibly hard not to do it especially with social media showing you what everybody else is doing (laughs) so you can't even hide from it so I have found that sometimes I do try and hide from that just to just so that I don't get caught up in that that self-doubt and that worry that you know um you know because everybody's journey is different and the experiences are different um so I think those are things I, I that I would definitely give as advice to people coming through. Also, I think that it is, like you just said, it's a wonderful and amazing experience. And it's something that lots of people will never get to experience. So I do keep trying to tell myself not to worry mm. and to try and have fun with it. Um, because like you say, everyone, ex- everyone thinks that it's this exciting, wonderful thing. And it, and it is. And it really, really is. And it's reminding myself constantly that that is what it is and not to get caught up in anxiety and worry all the time. Mm. Yeah, it is It is difficult and it is emotional. And, and I think um, because it doesn't matter what you write, art is so personal and it's very hard not, like you're saying about the comparison thing, it's hard not to think it's personal. Mm. Uh, whereas... Um, and I, I talk about this all the time in the podcast about, you know, business versus art, business versus, you know, the thing that you've created from yourself. And then suddenly it's out in the world and it's a product and it needs to be sold and it needs to be sold in a particular way. And there are things that we don't have control over. And you might sit there thinking, well, hang on, 
that person over there is getting this I'm not getting this or <laughs> you know all those sorts of things that go through your head and you're and you have to almost just think you know I'm proud of my work I'm proud of my book people will read it people will find it and people will pick it up and think you know I think everyone I know has had a message from someone to say this book was brilliant or this book was my favorite book of the year or this book has kept me awake at night whatever it is in a good way I say um so it's it's difficult it's hard but you have to kind of like you say remember the positives and and kind of concentrate on them as as much as you do you know we're in a really really lucky position you know it's 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 a dream that has come true um that so many people have um so yeah it's important to try and 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 feel proud about your about your about how far you've come and what you've achieved without looking at anybody everybody else and seeing what they're achieving one of the hardest things that I have found is is that kind of you kind of you write a book and you think that you know you've written a book and off it goes and it's going to go out there in the world and, and and do its thing and that I wasn't quite prepared I didn't know at the beginning of when I signed a book deal how much of yourself you have to put into that whole process too how how everyone loves to hear personal stories which is great but when you're all kind of like an introverted person that I like I am it's been a really steep learning curve for me I think being open and sharing my personal thoughts and opinions in such a public way it's it's terrifying absolutely terrifying um and it's I'm, I'm finding it easier and easier as I go along but definitely it's something that I did not know in the beginning um I also had I had no knowledge of the book industry I'm a massive reader I read all the time I've been a reader since I was tiny I can tell you all about books but I realized that I knew absolutely nothing about the publishing industry so even that in itself as well has been a really steep learning curve just understanding how books are sold you know what makes books sell these are things that I've kind of had to learn along the way Mm. I don't know if knowing them earlier would have helped or hindered but it's definitely been an an interesting learning experience for me (laughs) did you find that you felt comfortable enough to ask lots of questions or were you kind of just kind of almost along for the ride I think in the beginning I didn't ask any questions I felt very much like I'm just going to do as I'm told (laughs) you want me to do that I'll do that okay and now now I'm starting to feel I think a bit more confident in myself and 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 I can sort of ask some questions about things I'm I'm being asked to do or, or, or say um yeah, and I think I've been very lucky that I have got very good as the as the years have gone by. I've had two years to get to know my my editor, my agent, and my kind of publish my um, publishing team really, really well. So we've kind of developed friendships as well. So now it's much easier, obviously, to ask questions. But in the beginning, no, I was absolutely terrified of them all. <laughs> I think we've all had that feeling, don't we? <laughs> um, so finally, Fiona, I'd love if you could tell us. If you're writing anything new at the moment, give us a little tease about what might be next to you. Oh, tease. I am, I am, I am writing something and I'm I'm actually very excited about it, which is which is I'm really pleased about because I did have that horrible moment last year of feeling like I put everything, everything I know, everything I am into the day de- into the, the debut novel and I was empty. There's nothing left in the pot. There's nothing there. I was thinking I'm never going to write again because I've got nothing left to say. Um, but I think 
I think keeping busy and not focusing on the book in a really weird way and doing lots of other things has allowed me to slowly fill up again with ideas and, and thoughts. So yes, I am writing something new. It's, it's in the very early stages. So I can't say much about it, um, but nature will still be there. It's yeah. always there. I, I, had, I had a feeling, I had a feeling. <laughs> I don't think I can write without it. I, I think it's always going to be there, yeah. <laughs> you write about it beautifully so that's that's all good in my in my opinion uh fiona thank you so much for joining me on the thank podcast you. today thank you so much for having me it's been it's been really great fun <laughs> thank you <laughs> that was fiona williams talking about her contemporary novel the house of broken bricks which is out now and available to buy and if you'd like to support this podcast debut authors and independent bookshops you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it would be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Have you ever Googled your own name? Prepare for a shock because your personal info, including addresses and phone numbers, is all out there. It's all harvested by data brokers and sold legally. Aura is a personal digital security service that scans the internet for your sensitive information and provides a full suite of privacy-enhancing tools. For a limited time, Aura is offering listeners a 14-day free trial at Aura.com safety. That's A-U-R-A dot safety to learn more and activate the 14-day trial period.